Okay. My apologies. Okay. Had the wrong button pushed. Great. This meeting will come to order. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Monday, November 27th, 2023 meeting of the Rules Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Supervisor Matt Dorsey, Chair of this committee, and I'm joined by Vice Chair Shimon Walton and committee member Asha Safai. Together, we would like to express our gratitude, as always, to our clerk today, Mr. Victor Young. Um, thanks also to the team at SFGovTV for facilitating and broadcasting today's meeting, in, partic in particular, our producer today, Mr. Jaime Echeverry. Uh, Mr. Clerk, do we have any announcements? Uh, yes. Public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, please line up to speak on your right. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Rules Committee Clerk, at victor.young at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment by email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and included as part of the file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. mail to our office at City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Documents to be included as part of the file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda on December 5th, unless otherwise stated. Great. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And before we get started today, in the interest of time for a meeting in which we have about, uh, we have six items for us to consider, we will be limiting public comment for each item on today's agenda to one minute. Uh, Mr. Clerk, would you please call item number one? Uh, yes, item number one is ordinance amending the administrative code to clarify the controller's audit and monitoring responsibilities with respect to nonprofit organization contracting with the city, directing the controller to establish measurable performance goals for contracts with nonprofit organizations, directing the controller to periodically review and, as necessary, revise policies regarding contractors' compliance with city requirements and requiring the controller to perform an annual review of department's compliance with policies for auditing and monitoring nonprofit organizations. Thank you, Mr. Young. Uh, Supervisor Catherine Stephanie is the sponsor of this item and she is joining us this morning. Supervisor Stephanie, welcome to the Rules Committee. The floor is yours. Thank you, Chair Dorsey, and thank you, colleagues, um, for scheduling this item. I'm excited to be with you today. Um, this piece of legislation is something I have wanted to do for a long time. I introduced this ordinance in September of this year after having asked the City Attorney's Office to draft legislation codifying recommendations made in the uh, Controller's Citywide Nonprofit Performance Audit that was released on August 30th of last year. The legislation is aimed at enhancing transparency, accountability, and the overall effectiveness of the community-based organizations, which are also known as nonprofits. These are nonprofits that we enter into contracts with um, to provide essential services. My ordinance will centralize responsibility with the city controller to establish standardized performance criteria and requirements, ensuring measurable objectives. It also strengthens a corrective action policy for nonprofit contractors to ensure adherence to city funding guidelines. This will in turn bolster accountability and ensure or help to ensure reliable service delivery. Currently, the city spends over $1.7 billion on contracts with over 600 nonprofits. These organizations are expected to provide a wide range of services, including health services, early education programs, family support services, homelessness, housing, and the list goes on. 
Until now, the, the city's lack of uniform guidelines for these contracts has far too often resulted in waste, redundancy, and sometimes even abuse. Last year's report emphasized that, that the city ineffectively measures the work of nonprofits, that the city does this. It's on the city to monitor what we're doing with our nonprofits. So the report said that the city ineffectively measures the work of nonprofits and that the process for reporting and remedying issues regarding underperformance remains unclear. Of course, this legislation is to make it clear. Many nonprofit service providers have voiced concerns about the city's onerous, ambiguous, and inconsistent compliance requirements, which is not fair to them. Most importantly, residents are as frustrated as ever by a lack of visible progress on our most pressing challenges, despite billions in city spending. As San Francisco faces tough economic challenges and rising dissatisfaction with local government, the city must ensure that nonprofits are run efficiently and effectively with a focus on delivering, again, measurable and tangible results. I want to thank the city controller, Ben Rosenfield, who's been absolutely amazing, and Laura Marshall on his team for their incredible work that has gone into this. We've had several meetings, and um, also the deputy city attorney, Kate Kimberlin, for drafting this legislation and working with us on it. Also, my sincerest gratitude to Debbie Lerman and all of the other incredible nonprofits who work with the Human Services Network. And I want to make clear, too, there are so many nonprofits that we contract with that are doing incredible work out there. And it's really on the city to make sure that we have measures in place to make sure that we are measuring their outcomes, we are evaluating the performance, and we as a city are delivering uh, tangible results. Again, the nonprofits we have been working with have been collaborative and persistent partners, and I'm incredibly grateful for their advocacy. I don't know if my colleagues have anything they want to say, but if not, I think we can begin with the first, pre the, well, the presentation from Laura Marshall. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. I'm Laura Marshall from the project manager from the uh, city performance uh, division of the controller's unit. Uh, Laura? floor is yours. Hello, Supervisors. Thank you for having me. Laura Marshall with the Controller's Office. Um, I've had uh, the pleasure of working with Supervisor Stephanie and her team on some of the components of this, so I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview of the various parts of this legislation and a little bit of the contextualization, current state, what's happening now and what we think might um, change based on this. And then at the end, a bit on where we stand now, some implementation, how we would move this forward. Um, so we know that we do a lot of business with nonprofits. Uh, city departments are responsible for the monitoring of the delivery and the quality of contracted services. We do have a centralization um, in the controller's office regarding the fiscal monitoring of nonprofits. We coordinate um, departments and um, uh, work with them to set standards in that space. We haven't had that in the programmatic space um, so far. Um, as the supervisor mentioned, we know that many nonprofits in our, um, in our city are doing really high quality work. Where problems tend to arise is that we don't have a clear, consistent, and organized path for escalation when there are challenges within, um, within a nonprofit, within a contract, um, across departments, for example. And so this is, uh, 
in part looking at that uh, cross-departmental space and creating um, enhanced oversight of nonprofits um, to ensure we're receiving really high quality res results consistently. The first big component of the legislation is related to the monitoring activities. Um, so this directs the controller's office to establish standards for how we, we set performance measures, how we measure performance in contracts. Um, and then um, further how we monitor that consistently. So we're looking at sort of the basics of monitoring, like site visits, when they should happen, how they should happen, as well as regular reporting requirements, um, and then the ongoing engagement between uh, departments and the nonprofits they're contracting with. Most departments are doing monitoring now. This is pretty, you know, it's occurring across um, contracting departments, but there, um, there can be a lot of variability both within a department and across departments. So this is hoping to standardize some of that variability. Um, and there is also a lot of uh, focus in that monitoring on compliance. And this relates to sort of funding source uh, constraints. The, the feds are really interested in compliance, for example. Um, and so we're interested in uh, how we can use this to build a focus on performance uh, in that monitoring. There's an element of the legislation that directs the controller's office to update our existing citywide corrective action policy. Um, there, we use this fairly consistently right now related to fiscal monitoring and it's sort of our way in the controller's office to coordinate departments when there are financial concerns uh, within a nonprofit uh, that arise through that monitoring practice. Um, we know that there can be a strong link between financial um, constraints and performance within uh, a nonprofit. Um, and we know that there is a lot of cross-departmental funding of nonprofits. So if we're seeing poor performance in one space, we might be seeing it in another um, department's contracts as well. This, uh, this uh, re-look at this corrective action policy um, hopefully will create more of a holistic approach that looks at all parts of the nonprofit and, um, and their performance and their finances and creates coordination across departments um, when there are issues arising. As well as sort of, a, uh, as always, we focus on what are the implications regarding technical assistance? Um, how can we support the nonprofit to, um, to meet those standards? The ordinance has a strong focus on transparency. There are two different transparency elements. Um, one is uh, a component of the legislation that directs the controller's office to conduct a review of what information is currently publicly available um, and make recommendations around how we can increase transparency, particularly around the spending performance and types of services the city contracts for. Current state, we have a lot of public reporting right now, but um, you know, SF open data, SF open books, there's a lot of information out there, but it's not well organized and it doesn't tell our clear story and there are definitely gaps. Um, we know um, Supervisor Safai had recent legislation that um, enhances some of the compliance reporting um, uh, the city administrator is working on um, implementing on that. We see that as sort of part of the uh, sort of part of the whole here and, and integrated in this sort of transparency effort. The second element of transparency uh, relates to the program monitoring itself and directs the controller's office to issue annual reports on departmental compliance uh, with the uh, 
with the monitoring practices. Um, we do an annual report right now on the fiscal side, so we'd have to think through what uh, the, you know, given that there's thousands of contracts out there, how do we um, create an annual report that looks at the programmatic monitoring of all those contracts? So that's a, an element of this. The final element of the, uh, the legislation directs the controller's office to develop policies and procedures that ensure nonprofit organizations receiving at least 750,000 in uh, contracts from the city submit audited financial statements to the city. There is current state law that requires any nonprofit that has at least $2 million in revenue to uh, receive, this is what we call a CPA audit, a private audit um, from an accounting firm. Um, and submit that to the state. The federal government has current guidelines that require um, any nonprofit um, receiving uh, at least 750,000 from federal sources to participate in the single audit. Um, and we have departments, departments have internal policies that are sort of variable across departments, but um, they may require a nonprofit that gets at least, for example, 500,000 from their department to uh, have a CPA audit as part of their contract. So there's a lot of variability in what the standards are. So what this uh, component does is it creates a single standard for when we as a city would require a nonprofit to submit an audit to us. Um, we know that there are some pool that are already doing it um, because of those different thresholds that have been set. Um, it is important to note that a CPA audit does increase, does have a cost associated to it for nonprofits. So it can be eight or $10,000 or more depending on the size and structure of the nonprofit. So for those that are not currently, for those that are receiving at least $750,000 from us that are not currently getting a CPA audit, there is sort of um, an element of cost there. So those are the elements of the, um, the ordinance. The ordinance has timelines associated with it, um, has us submitting and, and creating and submitting some of these policies or publishing some of these policies by September 1, 2024. Um, we've already started thinking about this. Um, we have a standing policy group of um, some department and nonprofit leadership that we bring together and have for the last couple of years to talk about at different initiatives in the nonprofit policy space. And so we've been talking with that group about some of these implementation elements already. Um, so we are um, on track to think through what this new policy would look like and be able to publish. We're also looking um, at what our internal departmental operations would be related to kind of oversight of this new program and would plan to also have a program implementation plan by the end of the um, this September timeline as well. Uh, so those are the elements of the uh, ordinance, um, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Ms. Marshall and uh, Supervisor Safai. I just wanted to clarify, can you say a little bit more about the CPA part? Is that something that's required? There is, currently, there is no city, explicit city standard that requires a nonprofit to uh, receive a CPA audit. Uh, there is the state law um, right. that requires it at two million. A CPA audit um, is a good practice, and um, when there are um, uh, when a nonprofit reaches a certain size, we would absolutely either recommend or require if they're above two million, um, uh, they get one because it helps them understand. Uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, 
financial um, indicators with it that you can um, use an audit to identify that help you know if that nonprofit is sort of in good standing, is sort of strong, has good reserves, has you know is able to you know meet their uh, their uh, payroll every month. Those kind of indicators that we're looking at consistently. Um, it's sort of a line about when when a nonprofit reaches that line, and I think some um, it can, because there is a cost and because it is sort of a, a there is work associated with it. Um, it it's important to understand uh, to set that threshold of where the line is um, appropriately and not be too low. Um, we have had consistent we have had policies from departments at around the five hundred thousand dollar <laughs> level. And we have consistently had the 750 level from the federal government. Um, so aligning probably to that $750,000 level uh, probably is high enough that it won't unduly constrain uh, nonprofits that are kind of in that more emerging space. I d thank you. I just wanted to clarify that you, what you were saying, I, and I have the note here that nonprofits with the $2 million or more revenue by California law are required to perform uh, an audit, and then federal government is 750. And I was trying to clarify, is that CPA related? Is that what you were saying? The federal <laughs> government um, requires participation in the single audit, which may occur differently. I don't know exactly how the single audit, um, but I can find out more about how that flows from others in our controller's office that manage that work. Um, but usually it does require some, some sort of um, yeah. auditing practice happening within the nonprofit. Got it. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to say, um, appreciate uh, Supervisor Stephanie's uh, work on this. And as you noted, we had done some work um, last year through Proposition C uh, for mandatory audits of nonprofits, particularly that we're doing work uh, in, with the Department of Homeless Supportive Housing. Um, so I think this is a good practice. I appreciate the work that's gone into clarifying uh, exactly what is required. Um, and also to say, and, and I also want to reiterate, you know, we have over 600 nonprofits that contract with the city that do tremendous work. Um, it's anywhere between a billion and a half to a billion and seven amount of money that is that we do that the city cannot do on its own behalf. The city has to work with these nonprofits, but we also have to have the right thresholds and accountability. And so I appreciate this legislation um, and thank Supervisor Stephanie for bringing this forward. And, and as she said, uh, I know she worked closely with many of the nonprofits to craft this legislation. I think it's timely. I think there's a, a, a lot of money that goes in and out of city government and I think it's important for folks to know exactly how it's being spent and that it's being spent appropriately. And then also, I think another element of this is that it will help uh, many of the nonprofits have more uh, clarity and guidance on exactly what is required of them. And I think sometimes in the past that has not always been the case. Uh, so I would like to be added as a co-sponsor um, and continue to work with Supervisor Stephanie on this implementation. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Supervisor. Um, Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey, and thank you for the report, or Ms. Marshall. Um, just a couple of things. One, I would be interested in knowing what CBOs are having audits conducted yearly without a CPA, because I think it would be wise for us to come up with some kind of technical assistance strategy to make sure that that doesn't happen for any organization. 
But does this apply to nonprofits who have a fiscal agent as well? And what I mean is, if you're a small organization, even if your budget is over 750, is that requirement for you or for the fiscal agent? Uh, there are, um, when we're talking about programmatic monitoring, we're talking about uh, sort of what are the expectations established in a contract and including the performance measures as well as sort of other sort of service quality expectations that are contractual. Typically in a contract uh, when there is a fiscal agent or a fiscal sponsor, the sponsor is the one who is accountable to the city to ensure that the services are being delivered in alignment with what the contract expects. When they have a sort of a, a program or a project that they are working with to, that is the direct deliverer of those services, it does create complexity in how the monitoring occurs, but ultimately, um, it, it is sort of the, the, the organization we as a city have a contract with who is accountable to the delivery of the contracted services and receives the funding, and then they're uh, responsible to manage the, um, manage the work of their, the program that they're sponsoring um, and giving them the, the city resources to do that. Um, so there is a little bit of complexity in that space around how monitoring occurs that we would love to unpack and try to disentangle for departments and for nonprofits so it's a little clearer. No, I appreciate that. I definitely would love to follow up on that. Um, and as someone who has monitored CBO contracts for the city and county of San Francisco, one of the reasons that monitoring uh, is not universal across departments because some organizations receive local funding, they receive state funding, they receive federal funding, and as we know, federal requirements can be more cumbersome than general fund money. How are we gonna take this into account when, yeah. when we craft the new, new monitoring uh, measurables? It's a great question. It's exactly why this has not quite been done before. We've done, it's much easier to standardize the financial side of monitoring because we expect nonprofits to operate financially reasonably similarly. But the programs are so diverse and different and the funding source requirements are, are diverse and different as well. I don't expect that there will be, through this work, complete standardization of everything. Um, it's just not feasible. I think some of the work that we can think about are creating um, baselines to make sure that departments that are not maybe monitoring enough or doing it in quite the right ways are, um, are doing monitoring that aligns with our standards. Um, thinking about timeframes, regularity, consistency of, of those monitoring practices and making sure that that occurs. Sometimes there will be federal sources that may require more than that baseline and that will that will always be true. Um, and I think one, one of the things that we're thinking about is how do you, how do, you, how do departments uh, ensure that those uh, baselines are met, but they're not onerous when there's other sources requiring more, that we kind of create some streamlining and some, um, you're not, nonprofits are not having to submit the same document over and over again, trying to think about ways to, um, 
both raise ships to meet a baseline, but also um, make the, the ones that are a little bit more rigorous sort of uh, create some streamlining and standardization that helps make it less uh, burdensome for, for nonprofits while still achieving the goal of, of really um, conducting really sound oversight. Well, and the only reason I ask that question, because I know there's a joint monitoring forum that different city departments go in to monitor organizations together. And to your point, there's a base of what they require from the CBO. And then there are additional um, monitoring components for folks who receive federal funding, for example. So I'm just wondering, are we, is it going to be a matter of changing that, trying to make that more uniform, or are we coming up with a whole new system for nonprofits? Because it sounds like a lot of this, going through the legislation, and I definitely appreciate what Supervisor Stephanie is trying to do, but it does sound like a lot of this is in place um, in a lot of ways. There is, you're right, there is a lot in place. Most of the departments that do a lot of the nonprofit contracting have established policies and have um, frameworks for conducting monitoring. Um, there is a lot of variability across those departments. Some of that is because a department might have a, sort, a funding source that requires some amount of variability. Some of it is just the organic growth of our programming over the years, um, where there, it makes sense to try to um, streamline. I think we want to find that and use this to to understand why there is variability, what purpose it's serving, and what, if, it, if it is serp serving a purpose. Um, I don't imagine that this would necessarily in its first run result in any kind of overhaul or creation of a whole new program. There is a lot of work actively happening. I think what we're trying to think about is how do we, um, how do we create a little bit more structure around that work so that we can kind of understand what's happening and maybe move it in a direction over time that if we're seeing that there's these types of requirements that make sense to standardize across every nonprofit contract. Let's let's think about that. So I think um, I, I don't envision that we would we would because there's so much existing work and a lot of it is strong that we would we want to sort of overhaul everything. But I do think we want to learn from what's working really well um, and try to promote that across um, across departments. And as we work to be efficient in monitoring, I know one of the difficulties for the city as well as nonprofits is getting into contract in a timely manner. Is there anything that is going to be done to kind of make sure our city departments are getting contracts in place in a timely manner? There is an element in the legislation that talks a little bit about um, sort of the city as a good business partner um, and making sure that that's sort of a, a component of our work, that we're not creating something that um, slows things down or bogs things down. Um, we have a lot of work that um, the controller's office and, and city administrator and others are doing around um, contract improvement, improve, improving the overall contracting process. It's not necessarily a component of this legislation, but there is a lot of active work thinking about expediting, spe speeding up contracting as much as possible, um, in particular in this sector. Thank you, No, and I definitely know it's not included in the legislation, but most certainly it's hard to monitor contracts when they're, you know, getting in place three, four, five months, six months 
later in some cases, and that makes it a hardship for the department as well as the uh, organization. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Walton. <clears throat> and, okay, uh, Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, and thank you, Vice Chair um, Walton, for those questions. And I just want to note, too, the, the audit that was um, the genesis of this legislation you know, found that um, no common definitions exist for types of performance measures used in agreements between departments and CBOs, and that departments funding similar programs do not use a common set of performance measures to assess program success, uh, and that greater transparency with our CBOs could help departments ensure performance measure targets are met and aligned with CBO capacity. So the idea of making this a more standardized process is to really address those findings in the audit. And I, I do want to acknowledge, too, that um, given that, you know, we do have so many different nonprofits, and as um, Vice Chair Walton said, um, with different sources and uh, in the community, there is a line on uh, page two of the legislation Line, page two, lines 20 through 22, that the controller's office to standardize and coordinate the city's business practices with nonprofits have been and will continue to be informed by community involvement and a racial equity lens. So I, I want to make sure that um, it is said that, you know, this, this is in the standardization of what we're trying to do here, um, many things will be taken into consideration. And I have such faith, faith in the controller's office because you've been able to do it around the fiscal and compliance um, part of this. So um, we're talking about the programmatic and the programmatic and performance monitoring and developing these uh, standards, which I think is so important. I will also be working to develop a dashboard um, that has transparency to uh, not only the public, but the Board of Supervisors to better understand um, what department is contracting with whom and for how much and why and what are the expectations, when is the audit going to be done and uh, what are the results of the audit. So that will be coming as well. And I do view this legislation as an essential first step in establishing the system that ensures accountability um, by both departments and nonprofits. And once these standards are in place, um, the city can better evaluate contract performance and make well-informed decisions. My next step in all of this, because I think more needs to be done, is um, to work on subsequent legislation, which I'll be submitting a drafting request soon, to develop a master contract that precisely reflects our intended goals and promotes high performance and compliance. So we also have, um, on the front end of this, right now we're working on monitoring what we have in place because we haven't been doing that and we need to do it better. Or we've been doing it in a way that's not effective, that produced obviously the findings that I just read in that audit. So really, again, to go forward and develop a master contract that will help prevent some of these issues with, of course, um, input from the nonprofits and the working group that we've been working with, I think is another way to do it. And just, and to say too, these audits are so incredible. The legislation that I've been able to pass based on the audits that come out from the city controller's office um, is really just to get a better understanding of what is our city, what are we spending money on, and what is the transparency around our taxpayer dollars. When there was an audit that showed that in three years' time, departments spent $5.4 billion on, I think, over 5,000 different grants without any accountability, transparency, open solicitation, or anything like that. We passed legislation that created um, Administrative Code Section 21G to make sure that that doesn't happen. 
So this legislation is really a product of the audit that really provided guidance to how to standardize and monitor performance in a way that I think is going to be very good for the nonprofits and city departments and, of course, then the general public. So um, that's all I have right now. And I know that Supervisor Safai seems to have more questions. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Supervisor Safai. I, I do. Um, this is specifically for the controller, um, just building on one of the points that Supervisor Walton had. So many nonprofits receive monies from many different departments. And there's a whole different set of standards in terms of what they need to submit, and I think that's a good point, and hopefully that can be standardized. Um, but it says in here in the legislation that, that they must submit to the city an audited balance sheet. Is, is the word city there intended to mean the controller's office? And is the controller's office then going to be reviewing for every organization over 750,000, looking at the, the audited balance sheet of those organizations? We would need to set some policy and procedures around how that would be implemented, and we would do that throughout the implementation process of this um, ordinance this coming year. Um, I I would assume that for the most part, our, our home for assessing audits is the fiscal monitoring program. And so through that program, we would identify um, uh, sort of procedures, how we want to receive that, um, those audits, where they live, and, and how we do financial assessment of those audits. Um, it may not be... Um, uh, uniform, uh, or it may not be, it may be that uh, we use sort of the typical tools of our fiscal monitoring program, which does have a, a, a process to create a pool of the majority of the nonprofits, but not necessarily all nonprofits to conduct those reviews of. Um, so uh, we would look to that program to kind of create the, the structures for that. And that's in, the, your, that's in the controller's office? We coordinate the departments to do fiscal monitoring. Um, but you coordinate the departments themselves to do fiscal monitoring? Yes. But it's not really clear yet, based on how this will actually be implemented, whether or not the audits will be submitted to the controller or to the departments that are requesting the money? I mean, where the, where the nonprofit is requesting the money from? So the way we, um, I think there's a couple things overlapping. One is typically in the fiscal monitoring process, departments, we coordinate departments, they lead the monitoring, they reach out as a single, as, as a single document request to nonprofits to say, send us all of the, the tools that we need to do the monitoring, including the audit, and then we store that centrally so all departments have access when they're looking at the financial um, uh, practices of their their funded nonprofits. I want to overlay what um, the, the, the ordinance that uh, you created, Supervisor, um, that requires some public posting of that material as well. And that's still also being designed um, with the city administrator. So I think there's a little bit of implementation planning needed to know how our departments um, receiving the audits when they're doing fiscal monitoring um, versus how are we doing public posting of information um, uh, that is submitted to the city. So need to work through some no, of those I, I get it. I would just say, I, and, and I know we could keep talking about this, just I think just for you know, ease of implementation and also uh, working with the groups that are actually the ones being audited, because it says 
you know, they have to work with a certified independent accounting firm, which I think is a good thing, is that if you have a organization that's receiving DPH, HSA, and let's say HSH monies, you know, who are they submitting their audit to, right? And so I think that's something to, to work with, and I look forward to working with Suraz or Stephanie on that because I think we want to make that flow of information as easy as possible on both ends so it can be reviewed, publicly available, and then for those that are able to do it or that haven't been doing it, it'll be apparent, and those that are, we can continue to move on and then implement the you know, the performance measures that I think are really also another important part of this. And I really appreciate the idea of dashboard. That's what we pushed HSH to do in terms of the work that they're contracting. It talks about here, implementing it September 1 of next year so that there'll be a dashboard and a website where you can receive that information. So I, I like that. Um, so anyway, thank you. Thank you, uh, Supervisor Stephanie and Chair. Great. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. And I just want to... Um I think that's, I have no questions. Thank you very much, um, Ms. Marshall, for your um, participation in this. I just want to say thank you to my Rules Committee colleagues for their excellent questions and input, and also say thanks to our colleague, Supervisor Stephanie, for her leadership on this. Um, I especially appreciate uh, the point Supervisor Stephanie made that this legislation is about requiring the city to be a better partner. Um, and this is not in any way intended to, to minimize or diminish the important work that is done by nonprofit partners and community-based organizations. Um, our CBOs and nonprofit partners are critical to making sure that we are serving our residents in a way that is culturally competent, linguistically appropriate, that reflects expertise that it may not have, that the city may not have in-house, but we have the ability to have to partner in ways that serve our residents and our city better. So I really appreciate um, this legislation and I'm happy to support it. Um, seeing no one else on the roster, Mr. Clerk, can we open this up to public comment? Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line speak now along the side of, by the windows. Each speaker will be allowed one minute. There will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when, you have, when your time has expired. I'd like to read something from an article in Dolores Park. The Dreamkeeper Initiative's own impact analyses, which rely on survey responses from grantees with a vested interest in receiving more money, provide little quantitative detail upon which to judge how efficiently the funding was spent. The initiative also has a complicated administrative and fiscal relationship to the rest of San Francisco's labyrinthine bureaucracy. It disperses much of its funding to other city departments like the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development and the SFHRC, a convoluted passing around of public funds brokered largely by the dozens of new city employees tasked with spending the DKI budget. In many ways, In many ways, this emblemizes how bureaucracy tends to relentlessly expand outwards, transforming eye-watering amounts of taxpayer dollars into new government jobs, meaningless impact reports, and no-strings-attached grants of dubious merit. Good 
Good morning. My name is Lucia Obregón. I am the director of the San Francisco Latino Parity and Equity Coalition, representing 21 nonprofit organizations. And we believe in the transparency and the establishments of standards in the proposed ordinance. And we also firmly believe that the process of providing services to the city must be viewed as a partnership between nonprofits and the city. We do have some concerns that we believe are important to consider. We believe that the process of establishing performance goals should involve collaborative efforts between city departments and include input from nonprofits who are serving the city. We see the services, you see services, we see it as community strategies. So it's important that those performance goals are aligned with those community strategies. We also urge you against increased burden of reporting. Besides multiple funding streams, reporting is heavy. It's required by different departments. And our organizations are currently operating at capacity being the weight of essential services. Additional reporting requirements would be a significant strait to our resources. Um, Good morning, Supervisors. Debbie Lerman with the San Francisco Human Services Network. Very quick history lesson. 22 years ago, Supervisor Sophie Maxwell sponsored the creation of a city nonprofit contracting task force that met for two years with city departments and nonprofits and developed 13 recommendations to include the contracting process, timely certification, standardization, get rid of unnecessary requirements. That report included the basics of this very overdue legislation that nonprofits and the city agreed to 20 years ago. There are two objectives in there related to performance monitoring. They talk about um, standards that have a means outcomes instead of true measurable outcomes. We support accountability and always have for both nonprofits and city departments that should be subject to the same kind of standards for their services. We support reforms that will strengthen services and that will make it easier for nonprofits to do business with the city. Please support this today. Thank you. Good morning. Janice Canallan with the Family Resource Center Alliance and Safe and Sound. I'm here representing 40,000 families receiving services through more than 40 nonprofit family service organizations throughout the city. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie, for this well-crafted legislation. There are many city accountability systems that already exist, and family resource centers are not fully funded by one city department. Family resource centers spend a lot of staff time and resources reporting to multiple city funders and complying with significant and varying oversight requirements. Standardizing accountability will support nonprofits, including family service organizations, to more efficiently serve families and children. It will allow family support organizations to concentrate more fully on what they do best, provide direct services to families. Thank you so much. Uh, good morning, Supervisors. Hope Kamer, Compass Family Services. I'm also the chair of the HESPA Family Subcommittee. Um, we're enthusiastic about this important and overdue legislation. We affirm that improvements need to be made to ensure there are citywide standards in place for contracting, measurable outcomes, reporting, and monitoring, and that establishing performance goals must be co-created and relevant to the work that we as CBOs actually do with families. Um, as always, I'd like to push back on the nefarious and baseless claims that the homeless industrial complex is wasting government funds. CBOs supporting homeless families do very, very much with very, very little, um, and we look forward to strengthening our transparent administrative partnership with our city department partners. Uh, 
to strengthen the threadbare city safety net. Thank you so much for your attention to this issue. Good morning. Uh, my name is Ani Rivera. I'm the executive director of Galeria de la Raza, a 50-plus-year-old arts organization based in the Mission. I'm also the co-chair of the San Francisco Latino Parity and Equity Coalition, representing 21 Latino-based organizations that serve five zip codes in our city. Um, I want to sort of follow up on what my colleague mentioned. The relationship between our nonprofits and our city is a symbiotic one. Um, our organizations are also currently waiting for contracts as we stand now. So this has to be a mutual transparency that we put into effect and we ask you to really consider the needs of these organizations. If we're gonna do implementation that we also invest in the capacity of what's going to require for us to be fully transparent and following you know, the guidelines you have provided. One example I can use being a grantee of the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. We are given um, lots of resources through Catch Fire as a capacity development tool. And I think if you're gonna be implementing, it's gonna have a huge impact on and financial burden on these nonprofits that we should take into account and put into play in advance. Thank you so much. Good morning, Board of Supervisors. My name is Amanda Alvarado Ford, and I'm the Executive Director and Immigration Attorney at La Raza Centro Legal, a 50-year-old legacy business here in the city and an award-winning um, legal aid honored by the District Attorney's Office and numerous others. I'm reaching out today because I think this is a, this is a good proposal. I think the spirit of it is really good. I have two um, proposed edits. Um, as an attorney, I think one of my uh, duties is to review any legal document, especially one that impacts um, nonprofits like ourselves that serve 4,000 individuals per year, all low-income and immigrant families, primarily here in San Francisco. Um, one is on page 2, section 1H, lines 24 and 25, where it says establish, the controller will establish standards for measurable performance goals for contracts with nonprofit organizations. Um, I think we need to consult with legal aides who are the experts in this industry because, for example, if we, we can't uh, conclude 40 deportation cases in the span of one year and only a... Speaker a, time has elapsed. Thank you. Thank you for allowing. Good morning, uh, Honorable Board of Supervisors. Uh, my name is Ramey Tan. I'm a local architect and a citizen. And um, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, some of the rumors I've heard about um, a lot of uh, scandals with nonprofits, which is unfortunate. You know, it shadows all the good work that uh, most of the nonprofits are doing. Um, I applaud uh, uh, Supervisor Stephanie for bringing up this legislation. I'd like to, you know, focus on. The two main items I think um, the, the supervisor needs to look at is is the amount of you know, money going directly for services versus uh, amount of money spent on the nonprofit's administration. Uh, that's a key metric. And the, the secondly is uh, the effectiveness of these um, services delivered. Um, so. Uh, you know how many you know how many uh, homeless people are are taken off the street. I know how many people have gone into successful drug treatment, for example, and and these uh, key metrics uh, need to be uh, looked at. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much, Supervisor Stephanie, for this legislation. I think best practice requires any kind of thing like this to be monitored and to make sure that what 
people say they're doing, they're doing. I'm actually just up here because a lot of us have prepared two-minute statements and you reduced the time we can speak to one minute. Um, I'm wondering if you could make it two minutes again and possibly give them each a minute again. I don't know if you all want that, but it's really tough to get everything we want to say in, in one minute. So thanks. <laughs> just a request. I believe that was our last public commenter. Great. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. Uh, I, do, I do just have to say this because no one else will, but DreamKeeper initiative contracts are monitored just as extraneous as any other contract in the city. In fact, even more so because black organizations and organizations of color have always been under a microscope in this city. So all the racist rhetoric that continues to happen in this city, which is very unfortunate, but to tech Dreamkeeper Initiative or any other funding that goes out to our organizations is just ludicrous. We do not allow organizations to go unmonitored. Thank you, Vice Chair Walton. Uh, Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. I, I want to thank my colleagues um, for your thoughtful comments and questions on this legislation and to those who came to speak at public comment. Thank you for your input as well, and especially Debbie Lerman for the history lesson. Of course, uh, 2003, there was that report, and I'm so happy we're finally getting around to actually implementing uh, what was in that report that uh, Supervisor Maxwell started. So uh, I'm really excited about this piece of legislation. I also want to thank my Chief of Staff, Dominica Donovan, who has been very helpful with it. And I'm looking forward to uh, watching what the controller office does in terms of developing these standards and um, what we continue to do to monitor you know, taxpayer dollars and to make sure they're being spent uh, effectively. And again, to thank all the nonprofits that we have worked with and all the incredible nonprofits that are out there doing such great work. I had the privilege to serve on a board of a nonprofit here in the city and just watching um, what work can be done by people who are passionate about taking care of others has, was amazing to be a part of. So um, thank you again, colleagues, and I look forward to your support. And thank you, Supervisor Safai, for joining as a co-sponsor. Great. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Um, and I guess I would like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with a positive recommendation. Clerk, we have a roll call on that motion. Yes, on that motion, Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And uh, item number one, administrative code, monitoring of nonprofits with city contracts moves to the full board of supervisors as, um, with a positive recommendation. And Mr. Clerk, could you please call item number two? Yes, item number two is the ordinance amending and approving the surveillance technology policy governing the use of automatic license plate readers by the police department and making the required findings in support of said approvals. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, Chief of Police Bill Scott is joining us this morning to discuss this item. Chief Scott, welcome to the Rules Committee this morning. Uh, the floor is yours. Good morning. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. And
Call recess? Did you call recess? It was 10 minutes. Okay. Oh, it started working again. Hello? It's starting to work again. But we want to check with building management just to be sure we're, we're good. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
session. Welcome back, everybody. We're back in session, and where we left off after a little technical difficulty with the um, audio was Chief of Police Bill Scott was joining us to discuss item number two. It is an administrative code provision governing surveillance technology policies of the uh, police department, and in this case, automatic license plate readers. Uh, Chief of Police Bill Scott, welcome uh, to the Rules Committee. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Chair Dorsey, and good morning, Vice Chair Walton and Supervisor Safai. So as you uh, just pointed out, Chair Dorsey, I am here uh, along with my colleagues to present on the automated license plate reader policy, ALPR as is known. But I want to talk about why this is so important to the city and to our uh, San Francisco Police Department mission to reduce, to reduce crime in our city. As you may already know, the SFPD has funding allocated to pay for 400 new ALPR cameras from a $15.3 million state grant to combat organized retail crime. SFPD has already approved an ALPR policy, but in order to use this grant funding that I just mentioned, the Board of Supervisors needs to approve the technical policy amendments that do two things. Uh, first, allow cameras from different vendors, which the current policy does not, and secondly, allow different funding sources, including state grant funding, which the current policy does not. Just to back up a step to, for the audience who may not be familiar with ALP, ALPRs, automated license plate readers capture computer-readable images of license plates and vehicle information to compare with suspected vehicles wanted in crimes. ALPRs also provides law enforcement with actionable leads to solve crimes by determining if a vehicle was at a crime scene or involved in a crime. And that provides real-time alerts when stolen vehicles or known suspected vehicles of crime are detected. So why is this so important to this police department in this city? Research according to the International Association of Chiefs of Police shows that 70% of all crimes committed are committed with a vehicle being involved, and I think our city is no exception to that research. San Francisco has proactively worked to address high property crime rates that are often committed by serial offenders, and oftentimes our experience has been that these offenders use vehicles to go to the crime scene and flee from the crime scene. And sometimes, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, even use vehicles to drive into vehicles to defeat the security measures that the retailers put in place. Our license plate readers, our automated license plate readers can help identify suspects vehicles used in some of the city's most challenging crimes like those that I just mentioned. They include organized retail theft, auto burglaries, catalytic converter theft, stolen vehicles, and more. And many of these property crimes have much lower clearance rates because these suspects move quickly and are hard to apprehend. And usually there's little evidence, particularly without us having the maximum technology to take advantage of identifying these vehicles. So license plate, automated license plate readers can not only identify suspect vehicles in real time, but also they can help identify other cases that these vehicles are involved in. And these license plate readers will help solve violent crimes as well as other important investigations like Amber Alerts, stunt driving or sideshows, and more. Our police department is currently short around 500 officers and ALPRs would act as a force multiplier helping alleviate staffing challenges and enhance the ability to solve crimes more efficiently and quicker. 
So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the targeted approach in terms of what this technology actually does to help us. ALPRs will assist our police department to make investigative stops more precise by knowing the exact vehicles suspected in crimes. Officers will have more accurate information with conducting investigative stops. In other words, we have better information, we make better stops and more precise stops. ALPRs do not use facial recognition or deliver alerts containing personally identifiable information and data is never sold to third parties. Users must enter case numbers associated with an investigation to search the system and search logs are preserved for oversight purposes. This question um, that I'm about to answer or discuss has been asked by this committee on other issues, but let's talk about for a second the other agencies around them and how important it is to be a part of a network to solve these crimes. In the state of California, hundreds of agencies are using ALPR technology. A agencies can share information which allows law enforcement to collaborate and solve crimes and cases when these cases cross jurisdictional lines, which many of our cases do. The cities of Oakland, Berkeley, San Mateo, Alameda County, Concord, Richmond, Palo Alto, San Jose are all expanding ALPR use with stationary networks similar, similar to what our city is trying to accomplish. South San Francisco, who recently introduced new ALPR and expanded their AR, ALPR technology, saw a 80% decrease in car burglaries and a 50% decrease in auto thefts just after six months of installing this new expanded technology. Recently, the Oakland City Council voted to unanimously fund 300 ALPR cameras similar to what we're trying to accomplish here in San Francisco to address crime in the city after failing to secure a state grant funding. So part of the urgency of this is we need this help right now. Um, we just came through a long holiday weekend and we had our officers out in force combating organized retail theft. We made some, some arrests, but it's my opinion um, that we could have done more and done more, if, more efficiently if we had this technology in place right now. And that is the urgency that I'm asking this committee to support to make sure that we take advantage of this $15.3 million that we secured so we can expand our technology and be in a position to solve crimes more efficiently and effectively. And with that, we will have a brief PowerPoint presentation to better describe the process. So <clears throat> this policy falls under the San Francisco Administrative Code 19B requirements, which means that 
several things have to happen. The department has to draft a surveillance impact report and a surveillance technology policy that addresses this list of things, technology descriptions, list of specific authorized uses, prohibitions to uh, restrict mission creep, types of data captured by technology, potential civil liberties, impacts and mitigation measures, data security access, retention, sharing restrictions, disposal methods, cost of technology, and funding sources. Uh, also, that includes a residence and department benefits, compliance measures, and directions for members of the public to ask questions, submit information, and request file a complaint or submit an allegation of noncompliance with this policy. So in other words, there are many measures in place in order to ensure that there is a public process and they are, there are uh, civil liberties are protected. Next slide, please. So our ALPR policy went through the SF uh, Administrative Code 19B hearing requirements that included the things that I just mentioned, but I just wanted to point out here that the private, uh, Privacy Surveillance Advisory Board, also known as the PSAB, PSAB, um, evaluates surveillance technologies used by the city and county of San Francisco. That board has seven members re that represents various organizations in the city, including the Controller's Office, Data SF, Contracts, or the Office of Contract Administrations, uh, the San Francisco uh, SFO IT Governance, and Digital Services, and COIT the Committee on Information Technology. And the Committee on Information Technology is a governance body that makes decisions regarding the city and county's uh, technology policies. The 16 members representing the city administrator's offices and the Department of Technology, the mayor's offices, Office of Innovation, Board of Supervisors, DHR, SFPUC, and the Public Library, SFO, DEM, and HSA, and HRC, all sit on the COIT board, the governance board. So there is a lot of oversight that goes into this process. Next slide, please. The next slide just goes through basically the process. And then if you follow the arrows, it goes through the process from start when the policy is submitted to COIT to the ending when the policy, when it goes through all of these different levels of oversight goes to the committee of assignment and then the full board for the first and second readings. So there is a very, very thorough process that goes into these policy or the policy approval. Next slide. As I stated in my opening, uh, the department has already submitted an ALPR policy uh, that was approved in um, a couple of years ago, several years ago but this policy needs some minor modifications in order to be able to take full advantage of the grant funding that we have applied for and received from the state of California. Uh, just of note, in, in 2021, when this policy was, was initiated, the San Francisco Police Department had uh, only vehicle-mounted ALPR technology. The 19B policy also applied to semi-fixed, fixed, and smartphone applications of ALPR. This newer technology expands uh, in order for us to do more with the technology, including identification of vehicles, vehicle descriptions, and not just license plates. Next slide, please. So the reason for the 19B uh, surveillance technology policies minor amendments is to allow for vendor-specific 
language to be modified in this policy. In other words, this would give us the ability to seek out the most competitive vendor or the vendor that is right for the city's technology needs and not just a specific vendor as the current policy reads. Also, data formats listed in the current surveillance technology policy prohibited vendor platform expansion. In other words, there are different formats that as this technology evolves, uh, we don't want to limit ourselves in terms of the formats that this data can be received in. So this modification will also expand our ability to do that, not limit ourselves with the technology, with the types of formats that the data is received in. And then uh, finally, the third most important thing is the funding sources only pointed to SFPD operational budget in the current policy. That didn't allow for any other funding sources, i.e. a $15.3 million grant to be used to purchase and maintain the ALPR equipment. Now I know um, with many members of this committee, we've had prior discussions about the department going out and seeking other funding sources because of the city's budget constraints and that is exactly what we did and we'd like to be able to take advantage of that with these policy modifications. Next slide, or this slide. The ALPR 19B approval process as you see here is all the steps that this amended policy has gone through to get to this point and what we hope will be uh, support from this committee to go to the full board for the first and second reading uh, as soon as possible. And again, uh, the sense of urgency is we'd like to get this policy approved, but this has to go in conjunction with the accept and expand policy in order for us to be able to take full advantage of this grant as quickly as possible. So as you see, these are the steps that were taken starting on August 7th, 2023, after we were approved for this grant. And now we are at the November 27th uh, hearing. And hopefully, uh, if this gets supported by this committee, we will go to the full board for the first and second readings. And we'd like to do that as soon as we can, uh, preferably this week, but uh, at least to get that process started. And at the end of all this, we'd like to seek procurement of ALPR, semi-fix, fixed, or mobile applications using this new technology that I've described. And that is it for the PowerPoint presentation, uh, and we are available for questions. Great, thank you, Chief. Uh, Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey, and thank you, Chief Scott. I do have a few questions. Uh, my first one is, just for clarity for everyone, this is not a new policy for San Francisco, correct? That is correct. This is uh, amendments to the one that the board has already uh, approved. And why do you think the current policy doesn't allow for the use of state funding? It, or any other funding source? Well, the, the policy reads that the way we understand the policy is it is only allows for SFPD operational budget to be used for this technology. So grant funding, outside source funding, the policy doesn't allow for that. And that was the determination by a city attorney and? Yes. Um, and I know you mentioned this would be used, technology only used for vehicles suspected of a crime? So the way the technology works, the license plate, or the license plate readers alerts if stolen vehicles, the vehicles that have been flagged for being involved in crime. So that is what alerts for instance, armed and dangerous vehicles, those types of things, vehicles used in robberies. Um, 
and so it also this technology also captures a the vehicle itself so you not only have the license plate you have an image of the actual vehicle so let's say it's a red car that was used in a robbery and the car stolen on top of that this technology would capture the license plate it would capture the vehicle image and that is where the lead is generated so that that alert would be forwarded to the officers and then um, they would know they're dealing with a vehicle that was had been used in a crime and the readers are trained just to only focus on how do they determine what to read and what not to read as far as the license plate yeah all license plates are red but the ones that are alerted are the ones that are in the system as stolen or being involved in a crime so everybody's being surveilled but yeah, the, all license plates are, are red. When the license plate readers are active, all license plates are red. But nobody gets flagged unless that vehicle or that license plate is being flagged for be, being involved in a crime or stolen or something of that nature. So this wouldn't be used for like folks with outstanding parking tickets or light traffic infractions and no. things like that. No. And then um, just for my clarity, all we're asking for here, or all the department is asking for here, is to be able to increase the number of funding sources that can go towards purchase of the license plate readers and also increase the opportunity of vendors. Yes, vendors, the, the three things are not having a single vendor, which is, in our opinion, better for the city because it opens it up to competitive bidding and if there's a change in technology, we can take advantage of that in the future. Uh, second thing is allowing for outside, outside sources of funding, such as grant funding. And then um, the third thing is the data. Right now, the format is pretty rigid as far as what types of data formats that we can receive, and we like to expand that because technology evolves and there are many different formats of, of, of data. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Walton. Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Chair. First question I had, I was asking the Chair, but on your timeline it said September 21, 2023, Coit hearing voted to recommend to the Board of Supervisors. Correct? And then it, and here we are the end of November, what was the delay between September and November? There were um, a lot of discussions with the language. There were a lot of discussions on um, with us and our city attorneys and, and even internally on um, interpretation of the current policy. And, um, so those things took some time to work through, and then toward the end of this, we had to schedule around APAC, which took a lot of our operational people kind of out of the mix for a while. So we, we had to so, take that into so account. So I just want to be clear, like there was nothing on the Board of Supervisors end that slowed this down from September to now? That would be correct. Up until this week, it, it was more of the internal process. Okay. And, and just, I, just if I could add, yeah, Supervisor. Yeah, please, please. Um, this process actually is much, even with the delays, it's much faster than what we have experienced with other policies. So Right, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that based on your previous timeline you showed. It seems like it's August to now. And, 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 but, but let me ask you a question. 
So you said you submit amendments to the to the in August, right? That was during our recess. Then PSAB hearing to review the amendments, provide additional edits, and then Coit voted. So were there more edits and changes after the Coit hearing? No, there weren't more edits and changes, but there were discussions about how we can make this work as quickly as possible. So there, there is a lot that goes into this process and a lot of thoughtful discussions. Okay, so there wasn't even really any legislative changes. It was more internal conversations on behalf of your department. Is that right? The changes that you have in front of you are what Coit approved on September 21st, if that's your question. Yes, that's, I, yes. that's exactly what I'm trying to understand. And was there then debate or is there guidance from the city attorney whether you actually needed to even bring it back to us or not? Is that what was maybe slowing down some of the process? There was debate, yes, and, and guidance, both. Okay, I, I'm, thank you, Chief. I just want to ask the city attorney through the chair. So I, I know Supervisor Walton asked this question, but I wanted to hear from the city attorney's office. What was the determination from the city attorney's office in terms of whether or not this actually had to go through the legislative process or it could have, I mean, I guess there's another interpretation. It could have be, be amended without going through this process. What, what was the thought process the city attorney came to? Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, um, I have not been personally involved in this process, nor would I disclose any confidential advice that my office has given to its clients. Um, there is a summary in the legislation of several changes that are being made. Um, and... Those are changes to the policy, and the board is required to approve policies. Um. So there can't be administrative changes without going through the legislative process? Because this is a internal po this is a policy of the department, a policy of COI, this policy for the city. I'm just curious. I know that many departments amend internal policies without having to go through the legislative process. I'm trying to understand these, for future reference because this might come up again, and I appreciate the chief highlighting that this went a lot faster, that everything that we see in front of us was here from September 21st, um, and then there were some internal conversations with your department and, 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 and their department. I'm trying to understand how we ended up here, and, and is, is it something that is going to consistently need to happen if it's internal policies that are being adjusted? These internal policies are required by Article 19B, which was adopted by the Board of Supervisors, and that requires this process that the Chief has described for you. Um, not every internal policy is subject to a similar requirement that is codified in the administrative code. Okay. So what in particular made this rise to the level of having to come to the Board of Supervisors? Supervisor, again, I, I can't speak to that. I don't um, know what particular elements of this were debated internally. And again, I would not disclose any confidential advice that we might have given. Let me ask you a question. If you, a direct question then, if you say, if we say we want to change a vendor, versus one vendor versus a whole cadre of vendors. Does that require legislative change? 
Article 19B requires that policies include specific information, and I believe it does require identifying particular vendors. Um, that is a component of many policies, and uh, I am no expert in 19B. I, 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 <laughs> I understand. I'm not trying to put you on the spot mm -hmm. in that way. I'm, I guess what I'm trying to understand is how we ended up here and how we couldn't have done this quick. I'm just trying to think about efficiencies, that's all. And I heard, and I heard you say, Chief, based on what has been amended here, you, you make the language more broad and so that in the future that if there are other vendors that come into this category, you don't have to come back and do this again. Is that right? That is our understanding. But I would say this, um, and this maybe helps to answer some of your question. This was one of the first uh, 19B policies that we brought to this board. Um, as much as we try to envision what we might encounter in the future, you know, the, the, the state grant was not on, the, in anybody, on anybody's radar at that point. So we work with... Right, because it didn't exist. It didn't exist, exactly. So as far as our understanding of what we've been advised, but it, what internally, um, because this is an ordinance, the change of the nature that we're trying to amend has to go back to the Board of Supervisors for approval. Uh, because it was that specific in terms of single single source vendor, uh, some of the data restrictions and all that. So that had to go back to the board for approval. It was our internal understanding of that. So that would be, for instance, like on page five of the policy where it says NCRIC and or any other vendor utilized by the department may host the ALPR data vehicle theft abatement funds, the department operational budget or grant funds may pay for maintenance. Well, no, that speaks to data repository, so that is... Well, it was talking about paying for maintenance, right? So anyway, it talks about different sources of funding. I mean, I guess that language is probably mirrored in different parts. Okay, I have another question for you. So I, I think we've clarified that. We, we are here where we are. I just... Again, there's a little bit of a, a false narrative out there right now saying that the board has delayed or the board is not doing its job. And I just, I appreciate you saying that this language was exactly the same on September 21st and we've waited for this. And as soon as the, the chair was notified, this was scheduled and put on the agenda to, to move this forward. Yes, and just to, just to clarify, I and I don't know all the narratives that you may have heard, but what I do know is what, what we have asked for is, you know, two things have to happen. This policy move forward and then the accept and expand move forward. Both of those things have to happen for us to be able to utilize right. this $15.3 million dollars and p procure the equipment and all that. So that, that happens on Wednesday. Yeah, so. And, and, and the Board of Supervisors does not go on recess for the month of December. We are here for the first half of December. Just. For those That's, that are listening and spreading misinformation, great. Um, I do have a, um, another question for you, Chief. This is about the data storage. And I notice in the policy it says data will be stored, stored by the, in the following location. It says local storage and then vendor managed storage. Is that a normal practice for the vendor to manage um, data? Um, because it gives multiple locations, it says Department of Technology Data Center, Software and Service Product could 
cloud storage provider, local, I'm assuming local storage is your department? Uh, yes, w which page are you referring to? I'm on page eight. I mean, it's basically about the data storage. Like it says the vendor and you, meaning the department, have the ability to, to control and storage of the data. Correct. And can you talk about that a little bit? Well, vendor. And, and for instance, I guess I guess what I'm asking specifically, what are the policies on how to manage the vendor themselves in terms of having access to this data? Well, that's I think that's important to a lot of people. I understand that you all have your internal policies, and we have a way to kind of oversee that. But the vendor themselves, um, what are the controls in terms of how they use and have access to this data? Right, so one of the oversight measures in this policy and other policies is whether the vendors can sell information to right. third parties. And there are there's language to address that that restricts that. Um, a lot of vendors, when it comes to technology, um, they do manage some of the data. So there are the, there is a local component of data and then there's the vendor component. What we aim for is to make sure that we put protections in place so vendors are limited in terms of how they use the data. So we protect the privacy of people whose privacy needs to be protected. And we also protect the integrity of what we're after, which is we want this data to solve crimes and nothing more than that. So um, those, those measures are, and it's pretty clear and pointed out in the policy, um, the sections that deal with that. But the vendors in this particular policy, whatever vendors we deal with, cannot sell this information to third parties. And where does it say that? Specifically, I see where it says the SFPD shall not share, transfer, or sell ALPR information otherwise permitted by California law. The same page, and then it says ALPR man. information shall not be sold, transferred, but it doesn't say anything about the vendor. I guess, is that the sentence that's referring to the vendor? I, I don't know, you guys were very specific about everything else. So that the clause you're just reading is that protective clause. Um, separately, when we deal with contracts, we put in clauses to make sure that they're CGIS, CLETS, CORI compliant. Our own systems- Sorry, using um, acronyms, I don't know oh, what you're sorry. referring to. Thank you, I'll read them to you. Um, so the Criminal Justice Information Services Division uh, has the CGIS compliance, so it's an FBI, um, compliance measure for law enforcement agencies to keep data. Um, also, uh, CLETS, so that's the California Law Enforcement Telecommunication Systems, CLETS. CORI is Confidential Offender Record Information. Mm -hmm. So law enforcement is required to comply with all of these when it comes to data maintenance. Um, but you did read the clause about, uh, that sort of maintains the um, the content, the data itself, but throughout the policy and also in the impact report that did is not, we did not revise. Uh, we talk about how we maintain the data, um, how we do not share the data. And again, all of the vendors that we go through, go through a contracting process where we have to maintain, put in clauses to show that they maintain the data and do not share the data. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Um, Chief, can I ask you a little bit about uh, the timing of this? <clears throat> Presuming this gets, if this were to win approval from this committee today, um, 
and then it gets two votes at the Board of Supervisors for our last two meetings of the year. Um, how quickly would we be able to begin the process of procuring the cameras? Um, if after the second vote, second reading for this policy? Yeah. It's, we still couldn't, the other part of that is the accept and expand has to happen as well. So both components have to get through that process. Okay. Has it, so I, for, for this, we, we did waive the 30 day hold to make sure that we could move forward on this expeditiously and take advantage of the state grant funding. Is that, it, is there, is it moving a pace? Yes, for this, the 30 day, uh, there was a request made, I believe, by the mayor's office, and that was approved by President Peskin. Okay. So the 30 day waiver for this policy did happen. Okay. Has the mayor, and the, it, maybe this is to the mayor, did the mayor's office request on the accept and expend? Is a, a waiver of the 30 day hold? Thank you for the question, Chair Dorsey. Tom Paulino with the mayor's office. We did request a 30 day, uh, a waiver for the 30 day hold, which President Peskin granted. Okay. For the for the accept and expand, in the, is that? Did he say? Did he say they accepted it? Oh, okay. Okay, so that so it is, in in a separate committee, then it is moving apace. It's being expedited. The exp the accept and expand ordinance is currently pending before the budget and finance committee. It has not been scheduled yet. Okay. Okay, so the thirty day hold was waived. Are we? Is it scheduled? Is there, um, is there, well, I don't know, what, what is the timing on the accept? How, how quickly would we be able to have um, auto, automated license plate readers? Uh, My understanding is that it's scheduled for December 6th, I believe. Okay. 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 Is that right? Or two? He needs two? Sorry, Tom Paulino with the mayor's sure. office. The, the accept and expend that is pending related to this particular item is an ordinance, so it'll require oh. two readings. Oh. So to the chief's point, it is tentatively scheduled for next Wednesday, December 6th, which would put a second reading and a signature from the mayor, presumably in the first week or second week of January oh. 2024. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, that's, I guess that's the confusion. We're moving quickly in this committee. Okay, <laughs> okay. So it's, Okay, so and I, I would, would I, before opening it up, I don't have any uh, questions. I appreciate your presentation. I don't know, if I, I don't see uh, Vice Chair Walton if you have any questions. Um, I do, I share some of the concerns about just making sure that 19B is something that we can move fast on. I, I have a little bit of experience working with this ordinance and in some ways I feel like this is, um, I even feel that through in this building and among colleagues, we realize that this is something where there's still maybe 19 pain, 19 B growing pains that we can get this the process done faster. And I recall that even in terms of interpretation of this law, which is quite involved, it's it's there's a lot going on in this. I recall there was an instance in which there was litigation over this. And many of the advocates who were, you know, advocated for this policy to be written a certain way ended up losing in court for the, the different ways that it can be interpreted. So I do um, share the concerns about everything we can do to make sure that we are intent, fulfilling the um, intent of this legislation, but doing it in a way that's not onerous or overly burdensome. So I appreciate um, your work on this. 
And seeing no one um, uh, on the roster, uh, let's open this item up to public comment. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak now along the side by the windows. Each speaker will be allowed one minute. There will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when your time has expired. You may begin. When the mayor and some of you supported defunding the police to the tune of $120 million, SFPD had to reorganize its budget to prioritize officers over technology and thus lost the ability to stay current with even basic tech. For those of you who still do not want a department staffed fully with actual officers, one would hope that at least you would support all technology that could help the remaining officers work more efficiently. ALPR technology has proven to be a critical tool in helping law enforcement obtain objective evidence to solve crimes. It's already used in thousands of agencies in California and in dozens of departments in the Bay Area. The platform does not use facial recognition technology, nor does it use alerts pertaining to personally identifiable information. If you supervisors who pay lip service to public safety cannot pass this legislation, one that does not use facial recognition, jeopardize privacy, or cost the city a dime, you must stop lying to the public and admit you are not going to lift a finger to make your voters safe in their community. Communities. And you must also offer an explanation as to why it's okay for our MTA meter people to have and use hundreds of these LPRs every day, but not our police. And the other thing, is this not Thank on, you. is this not scheduled? Like, did Connie Chan not schedule this for Wednesday? So Speaker we have to wait till January for this? Crazy. San Francisco needs SFPD to be able to utilize every possible available technology to combat crime, especially during short staffing. ALPR is already used by over a thousand agencies in California. This platform collects objective evidence and preserves privacy, and we get it for free. Let's adopt ALPR and utilize every tool at our disposal to combat crime that is victimizing citizens and San Francisco's international reputation and tourism and conference dollars alike. It will be very telling if this committee does not pass this. Good morning, I'm Kevin Worrell with the Police Officers Association. I'm the Vice President. Um, the Police Officers Association uh, fully supports this uh, initiative um, that the Chief is putting forward, um, and I believe all uh, police officers in San Francisco also uh, support this. Um, the utilization of uh, ALPR is um, imperative, not only just to us in San Francisco, but also to the Bay Area as a whole, because um, it's not specific uh, to just to our uh, community. This is uh, occurring in the East Bay, in the South Bay, on the peninsula, in the North Bay. And, you know, to have that technology that uh, supports this Bay, the Bay Area is, is what we need. It, multiple vendors is imperative. Being so close to Silicon Valley and having the technology available to us is, um, is essential. Um, and you know, we have this grant, and I believe uh, we should use this grant uh, wisely. Thank you for your time. Good morning, or is it now afternoon? Supervisors, um, I just want to speak in support of obtaining this technology. It speaks volumes. If our city uses this technology every day, for SFMTA purposes, but doesn't allow it to be used for police purposes. That tells me that anyone who disagrees with this values criminals over the residents of this city. Please value the residents, please tell us you value us, and 
adopt this technology, push it forward with all expediency. It should absolutely be on the, the budget committee ASAP. I can't believe it's not already. Um, it's common sense. I mean, come on, let's use what we have available to us and keep this city or make this city safe. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Honorable Supervisors. I urge you to adopt this measure and expedite it to make sure that um, the city does get the grant funding. Um, this is a real no-brainer policy. Um, it, you know, as uh, Chief Scott said, force multiplies the uh, effectiveness of the existing staff. It'll hopefully, you know, lead to reduced overtime, which is, you know, per the SF standard is costing the city you know, millions and millions of dollars. So um, again, hope this uh, this gets adopted and also has some great things like being able to look at the entire vehicle. So in, in a case the car has paper plates or no plates or switch plates, um, the police should still be able to locate the vehicle and apprehend the, su the suspects. Thank you. Uh, good morning, uh, Alan Burradell. Uh, Supervisors Stephanie, Chan, and Melgar, I hope you're listening. The San Francisco Police Department's top brass was here recently, right here in this room, to tell us that we'll soon be losing 300 officers unless we do something drastic. Drastic help was on the way until a few weeks ago before, at the 11th hour, that help was hijacked. It was hijacked and poison-pilled by an aspiring mayoral candidate, Asha Safai. I would like to make pill. sure you direct you to speak on the item before us and not on an item that's not on today's agenda. So I'm talking about, I'm ta you, I, I don't have blue hair and I'm not screaming obscenities. Is that why you're interrupting me? If I was French and here blathering on, would you interrupt me? I've never seen you interrupt those people. You're interrupting me now for that? No, thanks. So public comment on this item is now closed. Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. I just want to clarify for the record again, $120 million was never taken from the police department. So I just want to make sure that, I, that we state facts in this meeting. $120 million was never taken from the police department. You can actually check that with the police department. You can talk to the chief. You can talk to the mayor. You can talk to anybody in leadership. $120 million was never taken from the police department. Thank you, Vice Chair Walton. And uh, seeing no one else on the roster, I would like to make a motion to send item number two to the full board with a positive recommendation. Mr. Clark, we yes, have a Yes, on that, that motion. motion. Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. On a unanimous vote then, item two, administrative code, surveillance technology policy, police department, automatic license plate readers moves to the full board with a positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, will you please call the next item? Yes, item three is ordinance approving the surveillance technology policy for Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco, use of a camera management and video monitoring system. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And uh, Paul Peterson from the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco is joining us uh, this morning almost this afternoon, um, to present on their policy. And as always, um, Coit Director 
Uh, Jillian Johnson is on standby to answer questions about the um, process for the Committee on Information Technology, or COIT. Uh, Mr. Peterson, welcome to the Rules Committee. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Chairman Dorsey, uh, Vice Chairman Walton, and Supervisor Safai. Appreciate you having me. Um, we presented our 19B uh, security uh, surveillance technology policy to the Privacy Security Advisory Board and to the COIT Technology Committee, and they approved it. Um, the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, I should say, uh, are composed of the D. Young Museum and the Legion of Honor. Um, the policy uh, defines uh, the authorized and restricted usage of our cameras and civil, uh, camera and camera management system and video monitoring system. Uh, it describes uh, authorized and restricted use cases as well as requirements for ongoing uh, operations. Um, the systems support our mission in two ways. It assures our ability to uh, uh, provide public access to our uh, art collections or world-class exhibitions, and it also allows the museum to review any video footage in the cases of art damage. Um, and that is it. Any, any questions? Um, I don't. I really I appreciate your... Uh, I know we've got a few things on the uh, 19B, and I appreciate... Um, the work that you have done on this and the process you've gone through, seeing no one else on the roster. I appreciate uh, your presentation. I don't think there's any questions for you, but Mr. Clerk, can we open this up to public comment? Yes, member of the public who wish to speak on this item should line to speak at this time. Each member will be allowed one minute. There will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when your time has expired. There does not appear to be any public comment on this matter. Okay, so uh, public comment on item number three is now closed. And I would like to make a motion to send item three to the full board with a positive recommendation. Yes, on that motion, Vice Chair Walton. On the motion to recommend item three. Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk, on a unanimous vote then. Item three, administrative code, surveillance technology policy for the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco moves to the full board with a positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, can we please call the next item? Yes, item number four is ordinance approving surveillance technology policies governing the use of social media monitoring software for various city departments. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And before discussing this item, I wanted to take the opportunity to thank Jillian Johnson. Um, this is the last week that the Committee on Information Technology will have the benefit of having her in the role of uh, director. Oh, while the city is not losing Jillian, she has been, uh, she has been recruited uh, by SFMTA. Uh, Coit will sorely miss her level head, calm demeanor, and ability to do a lot of cat herding on issues that are complicated and difficult and maybe things that people aren't fully knowledgeable about and often can be everyone's back burner issues. I, I kind of know some of this in my own time in city government, so that's, that is a, uh, a skill being persistent for people who uh, you know, maybe aren't as, as detail-oriented, so I've heard great things about your leadership there. Um, under your leadership, I know that Coit has accomplished a, a great deal. Um, in just the last year, uh, Coit has distributed a million dollars in PC refresh funding, passed the citywide technology resilience standard, continued work to implement the digital accessibility and inclusion standard, and prepared and advised on dozens of surveillance technology policies. Um, the item before us today, in fact, is evidence of Jillian's efforts to add efficiencies to the COIT process, and I think that was a theme of much of this meeting. 
Um, while maintaining transparency, today we will consider a single surveillance technology policy for social media monitoring tools that covers 28 separate city departments. Uh, Ms. Johnson, we appreciate your service and your continued service for the, a different department. Um, but now for uh, welcome to the Rules Committee and uh, the floor is yours to present. Um, thank you, Chair Dorsey. I did not expect that recognition at the beginning. I didn't know it would have been circulated that I was moving to a new role, um, but I deeply appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, and also good afternoon, uh, Supervisor Safaye and Supervisor Walton. Um, so yes, I will present on the social media monitoring software uh, policy for, I believe 28 departments are signed on for this policy. Um, so we made a multi-departmental policy. Generally, you've seen policies that are one department, one technology, um, but given uh, social media monitoring as a tool is typically used the same across departments, simply as a, a tool for communication, um, it, we were able to make one policy that covered lots of departments because they will all use them uh, the same way, essentially. Um, and so uh, we built this policy based on I think you've heard four other social media monitoring policies at this point uh, over the last year or so, um, and those that were approved, we took that information, put it into a central policy for um, the 28 departments. Brief description of the technology, uh, social media monitoring technology uh, essentially can review all social media accounts for a department, search um, all their, uh, all the public content on their, uh, on those various platforms um, that they have accounts on at once by typing in keywords in a dashboard. Um, the technology can schedule posts in advance uh, for those departments as well as analyze engagement for those posts um, so that departments can understand if their communication efforts are effective. Um, these, the specific function, functions of each tool can vary, you know, by vendor and type, um, but often uh, these tools allow for conversations to be labeled for later reference and to, you can save content across platforms um, on these uh, central social media monitoring platforms. Um, also search terms can be saved to repeat in future uh, searches. So the three authorized use cases that departments uh, signed on for this policy um, intend to use it under are to publish the department's content on social media, to communicate with social media users about department news and share information on services offered through social media channels, um, and to analyze data gathered from social media sources to assess the effectiveness of their outreach and optimize messaging to the public to achieve their communication objectives. Um, the policy was heard by PSAB on June 8th uh, and then by Coit uh, the following week and both uh, bodies recommended approval. Um, and I'll just make a note, there was a non-substantive correction made after those meetings um, to the environment, uh, to a portion of the policy specifically addressing the Department of the Environment. Um, they added three additional job titles to the authorized job uh, titles and the related personnel costs associated with those titles. Um, and then they also corrected the uh, floor number for their address. Not substantive. I don't think Coit would have changed their opinion based on these edits. Um, and so we introduced that to you all um, for your uh, review. Any questions? Um, I don't. I do appreciate the, uh, the um, efficiency of the opt-in and multi-department process that you led, and the, I think this is a good uh, model for other policies, not just social media monitoring. Um, you know, I think the, the simplicity we can bring to this, and as I mentioned before, I don't think this necessarily reflects it, uh, anything wrong about the policy. I think this, in many ways, this is anything that is 
bringing policy to oversight to technology has to understand that technology itself changes rapidly and sometimes much of the struggle that we have as policymakers is making sure that we're keeping pace with that. I appreciate your work on it. Um, I don't see no one on the roster. I think uh, I really appreciate your presentation and your service to the city and good luck with us, F SFMTA. Thank you. Um, Mr. Clerk, can we open this up to public comment? Yes, if there are any members of the public who would like to make public comment, you can approach the podium at this time. I do not see any members of the public uh, at this time for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. And I would like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with a positive recommendations is item number four. Yes, on that motion, Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. On a unanimous vote then, item number four, administrative code, approval of surveillance technology policy for multiple city departments moves to the full board with a positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, can you please call items numbers five and six together. Yes, item number five is a motion reappointing Supervisor Rafael Manelman, term ending December 1st, 2024, to the California State Association of Counties. Item number six is a motion reappointing Supervisor Rafael Mandelman, term ending June 30th, 2025, to the Association of Bay Area Government's Executive Board. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, Supervisor Mandelman is not able to join us this morning, but I do have a brief statement from his staff that I will uh, read into the record for both appointments. Um, regarding CSAC, Supervisor Mandelman is applying for reappointment to the California State Association of Counties as the San Francisco representative on the Board of Directors. In his past term, Supervisor Mandelman has represented San Francisco at the CSAC Board uh, regional meetings as well as the annual conference which took place uh, recently in Oakland uh, just a couple of weeks ago. At the annual conference, Supervisor Mandelman was a panelist on the CSAC California County Roundtable and shared San Francisco's efforts and challenges in tackling our city's fentanyl overdose crisis. He has also been a leading voice at CSAC in support of Proposition 1, which is Governor Newsom's March 2024 ballot initiative backed unanimously by this board which would both modernize the Mental Health Services Act and introduce a $6.38 billion bond to build new behavioral health housing and treatment settings across the state. Um, as for ABAG, the Association of Bay Area Government, Super Supervisor Mandelman is applying for reappointment to that body as well. He will be the San Francisco County Representative. In his past term, he served as the Bay Area Association of Governments efforts in the sustainable, resilient, and equitable growth of cities and counties across the Bay Area uh, through the endorsement of various state housing, transportation, and climate legislations. Uh, he has also actively participated in discussions related to Plan Bay Area 2050, a shared strategy for the future of the Bay Area that includes funding a next generation network of transit lines, a regional housing bond, and other solutions to tackle the affordable housing crisis, inclusive economic development, and a suite of protections to address sea level rise. Um, colleagues, I don't know if there's any questions or comments. Um, seeing none, I will uh, open this up to public comment. Mr. Clark. Yes, uh, this is call for public comment. There being no parties in the room, I believe we can close public comment. And public comment on items five and six is now closed. And I would like to make, make a motion to send these items to the full board with a positive recommendation. Mr. Clark, we have a roll call. Yes, on that motion, Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. 
Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. On a unanimous vote then, items five and six, the reappointment of Raphael Mandelman to the California State Association of Counties and the Association of Bay Area Governments Executive Board moves to the full board with a positive recommendation. Mr. Clerk, do we have any further business? That completes the agenda for today. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Thank you, colleagues. We are adjourned.